All right, at this point, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word as we continue our study of the book of James by picking up where we left off at James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Here in these words, we read the following. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the living one endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come before you now with a passage that presents to us a premise which we find in our flesh distasteful and abhorrent. And indeed, the entire edifice of our civilization militates and agitates against what your word says to us here. We pray, O oh God, that we would indeed hear your voice and that we would indeed run to it. For Christ's sake, amen. The pride of life has been with humanity since the fall. The urge, the impulse to grab, take, fight, kill, elevate oneself, to honor one's name, that's been with humanity since forever. But the birth of humanism brought with that impulse intellectual legitimacy, you might say. And we are taught, we've been taught for centuries now that humanism is the way to go and that the elevation and the promotion of humans, mankind, humanity, human concerns, human potential, humans, 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 is the key to human flourishing. That wherever there exists a reliance upon, a focus upon deity, there you find human suffering. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to say something 
scandalous. Maybe. Humanism is not the way to human flourishing. Sadly, it presents a veneer that seems self-evident that if we make much of people and their potential, then how can we do anything but elevate mankind? But as we have seen even this past week, within a system that elevates and only honors people and makes no room for God, catastrophe happens. And, 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 that, and that's... And, and the school, the horrific school shooting is not a cheap shot by me. It's not, no pun intended. It, it's not a, it's, it seems like a flamboyant thing. But it's just, a, it's just an example of what could be produced in legion form. Humanism has taught us to make much of us. And so... You look, just just look at the pages of recent modern history as people have been taught to look out for number one. The trail of destruction in lives, in families, it's unsurpassed. More carnage has been wrought in the name of humanism, then I would dare say in all the wars of even Genghis Khan. Brothers and sisters, humanism is not the key to human flourishing. You think of the people who live successful lives who really seem to grab life by the ears and have it under control. The people who really seem to be captains of their own soul, masters of their own fate. And they seem to live these flamboyant, exotic, wonderful lives that we look at and say, this is a successful life. No. You fool, says our Lord. This very night, your soul is required of you. And who then will receive the treasures that you have prepared? Our Lord asks a question in, in Matthew 16, 26. That is one of my quote-unquote life verses. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? We are faced in this passage with a premise that we find repugnant and repulsive. 
But yet, the theme of this verse is like one of those threads. It's evident in this letter, but it's evident and woven throughout the pages of Scripture. And it finds expression in places throughout. And a place that's especially hard for people to swallow is in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. When the teacher tells us, it is better to go into the house of mourning than into the house of feasting. For this is the end of all man, and the living should take it to heart. In verse 14, which is the heart of this passage, James tells us, After asking us what is our life, he tells us, you are a mist, a vapor that is here for just a moment and then is gone. That truth, that premise, I should say, is something that our culture hates. People agitate against it, and they, and, and they flee into one of two directions. Faced with the certainty of certain demise, people stare into that abyss and either, on the one hand, shake their fist or fall into despair. Our culture celebrates the hedonistic turn that we know that our end is coming and that it's inevitable and so you do as is repeated in the Bible over and over the, the, the statement, the sentiment of the fool which is eat, drink, and be merry. Why? For tomorrow we die. Tomorrow's not promised us so take and get as much as you can. Enjoy life now because tomorrow you're gone. But again, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You see, the key to making the most of now The key to being successful in your life now is not in reaching for the stars and accomplishing amazing things and leaving statues of yourself in victorious poses. The key is found in that thread that is woven throughout Scripture. You, O man, are mortal, and your days are few. You are not God, but you will stand before him and give an account. We learned last week about how 
sitting in God's place and assuming for ourselves his prerogatives to, to judge and to sit as judges over the law incurs judgment because it is so presumptuous. And yet for many of us, not only do we not like humanism, but we fail nonetheless, nonetheless, to account for the actions and the prerogatives and the freedoms and the sovereignty of God in our daily lives. And so live then as very little more than the humanists we decry. This is what James is addressing. If our lives are to be characterized by a humility that is based upon reflection of the fact that I am here today but gone tomorrow, then maybe we ought to live our lives with a little more circumspection. And that should lead to a little more graciousness. In verse 13 here, James gives us a, an example he wants to address how it is that we live our lives, that we do our business, so to speak. In this case, it is the example. He's not talking to, uh, to or about failures. He's referring to, and he's using in his illustration, confident, accomplished, successful, and self-assured people. These people possess all the traits that business and the military want from their folks, Decisive, confident, initiative-taking individuals. Aren't those virtues? Aren't, aren't these Christian virtues? James is, don't make a mistake here and think that James is telling you in verse 13 not to make plans. No, in verse 15 he commends plan-making. He's talking about the kind of living and planning that makes no account of the fact that there's a God who might have a different plan and he's in charge of you. And he wants you to grab hold of this fact because your life is temporary and you are impermanent. But your life here as a disciple of Jesus is meant to bring him glory and you're meant to enjoy the life that God has for you. Indeed, Jesus says that they might have life to the fullest. But man, oh man, we live like functional humanists when we assert and insist on our own way. Look what he says in, in verse Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a profit or spend a year and trade and make a profit. I mean, they've decided where they're going to go, when they're going to go, what they're going to do, how long they're going to stay, and they're confident of this is what is going to happen at the end, period. And he could have used any example, but he used this. Think of our lives. What plans... Have you made? Think back over the years. 
How many times have your plans come to fruition just according to the way you insisted it? Now, part of becoming a mature person is realizing that it's not going to be your way. But what happens when you have a lifetime of your plans being undermined and not coming to fruition? It's easy to become embittered. And an embittered Christian is not an attractive Christian. And it's certainly not the life that James nor I want for you. James paints a picture for us here of what it's like to go through life without considering our own finitude, nor regarding God, nor accounting for his freedoms. We forget that we are ignorant of tomorrow. We don't know what is around the corner. The Proverbs says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. How many times have we had an idea, a plan, a course of action that we're going to take that, that I see no downside here. I, I only see upside. But yet the consequences are catastrophic. It's not that we're stupid. It's we aren't omniscient. There's a way that seems right, but we don't know. Presumption tells us, no, it is possible to, to know everything you need to know, but the fact of the matter is, is we're ignorant. We are frail. We in our strength, when you're in the prime of life, you, you know conceptually that you're immortal, but... I'm sorry, you know conceptually that you're, you know, not invincible, but I can do it all. I can take all that stress. I can do everything. But yet, we are never more than just a moment away from utter physical ruin. We are brief. You don't, you don't have forever. There are people in this room, maybe a couple, that are double my age. And several who are decades older than me. But life is short. Life is very brief. And so we don't have perspective that we need. But then most of all, what we learn in verse 14 and indeed 15 is that we think that our plans are so, mm, and I am so much that that I can insist on my way, and, 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 and we place such importance upon us and our way and our plan and our whatever we're going to do, not realizing, not remembering. And this is really sad to say. I, I hope I'm not making anyone mad here. But cemeteries are full of people who thought they were indispensable. And yet here we are. When I was in the military, I, I did lots of funerals. Lots and lots of them. For mostly people who were young. We would do them for veterans who were older. Um, and I'll tell you what. People show up 
boo-hoo cry for a few moments and then go back to work. Life goes on. Life goes on. Now, I do not want you to fall into despair. What he is driving at here is the impulse that I can factor my life without God. And so he attacks that impulse by saying, all right, if you're going to view your life without reference to God, well, then here is the brute, blunt, unattractive fact of your life without God. You are a mist here today, gone tomorrow, and no one will remember your name. But this passage, brothers and sisters, is the key to infusing your life with meaning. Because you are called a brother, a sister of the very one who is controlling every moment of history. From eternity past, you were known, you were beloved, you were chosen by God the Father. And from eternity past, the Son said, yes, I will redeem him. I will save her. And from eternity past, the Spirit said, yes, I will take up residence in that person. And I will ensure that everything you're going to do, Jesus, that it gets applied to them. And so then, armed with the knowledge that we are part of a divine story from before the foundation of the world, we can face this life and we can face our business and we can face our families and we can face our declining health and we can face whatever knowing that not only are we dependent upon God, but that we are actively sustained and supported by him. For indeed, it is in him that we live, move, and have our being. And so, James encourages us to say, if God wills, we will do this or that or the other. You see, we are contingent beings. And our lives are daily testaments to the fact that we don't really pull the strings and call the shots. And so we are to live confident, not only that God is pulling the shot, the pulling the strings and calling the shots, but that he's doing so in a manner that brings him exaltation and is for our ultimate good. And so, brothers and sisters, he encourages us to plan in light of and taking account for the fact 
that God is in sovereign control of history and he does what he wants freely and what he does may in fact conflict with the desires and the intent that I originally had. That may sound like a recipe for fury and frustration, but when you remember that the way in which we should go is known to him, and that we are being kept because it is the will of the Father that not one of Christ's sheep should be lost. Then we can see, okay, what God has for me. It may not be what I intended or what I even wanted, but you know what? It is good, and it is right. And indeed, in the end, this is the path to a flourishing, successful life of faithfulness. So, I want to give you a few tips about planning. Because we plan all sorts of things. One, remember that it is God's purposes that prevail, not our plans. Hold even your most firm plan with a degree of tentativity. Second, submit yourself, body and soul, to the Lord. Commit yourself, Lord. I am yours. I was bought with a price. Isn't this what Paul tells us when he tells us to offer ourselves to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your spiritual or reasonable act of worship. Make a conscious decision to dedicate your life to the purposes of God. That is not saying, oh, I got to go sell my house and become a missionary. No. Maybe some of you. This nation's falling apart because Christians won't be Christians in their workplaces. Amen. Just be a Christian. Love your wife. Love your husband with all their flaws. Love your children. Honor your parents. Pay your taxes. Come to church on Sundays. Don't lie. I mean, be a Christian. But then when we do plan, because we all plan, dedicate your plans to God. Have you, do, do you ever make that a habit? Lord, this is what I would like to do, and this is what I think is the best idea to do. But I am yours, and you are sovereign. So if you want me to be doing something else, make me receptive to it. Dedicate your plans to God. Acknowledge in the planning process that we are in constant need of his provision and care. I don't care how accomplished the Lord and his providence has let you become. You only breathe because he permits it. Your synapses only fire because he allows it. And so it's a helpful exercise to remember what is really true in the first place. To say to you, to say to the Lord, 
oh God, this task that I am doing, that I have done a million times before, I can only succeed at it if you give me the mental recall. I can only succeed at it if you allow my heart to keep beating. I can only succeed at it if the other people along the path. So acknowledge your utter dependence upon his support. And finally, recognize and indeed give thanks for whatever is achieved. Even in failure, you can learn a lesson. In fact, most of the things most of us have learned have come from failure, right? Success hardly ever teaches us. So we can give thanks. Whether, whether that investment was smart and you, and you get a million dollars, woohoo! Thank you, Lord. Or whether you, you blow it, oops. Thank you, Lord, for letting me learn a lesson about hasty speculation. Either way, give thanks to the Lord because it's from his hand that we receive everything good. And so, as you live your life, I want to encourage you, not, not in some legalistic, you're ultra-spiritual if you do this type of thing, but I encourage you to revive an old saying. It was really, really popular with the Puritans and even with the, with, with the, Meth, with the Methodist event, revivalists in the 1700s. Uh, but the, it's the Latin phrase, Deo Volente. And they would say it. I mean, the, the, the Puritans say it prodigiously throughout their writings. It simply means God willing. It's, it's a marker that causes the utterer, that, that causes the writer to self-consciously remind themselves that everything they're saying is dependent upon, contingent upon, the sovereign, free, holy and good purposes of God that he calls the shots, not them. You grasp that premise that God controls, not you, and you're well on your way, brothers and sisters, to living that abundant life, to living a successful life. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the end. Deo Volente will go forth and we'll have a good week and we'll come back next Sunday and we will continue. But if not, we're in heaven anyway. How good is that going to be, right? So, Think that way throughout your life. What's the worst that can happen? You go to heaven? Is, is, really? What's the, what's, so, live your life, Deo Volente, if God wills it. Let's pray. 
Almighty God, we thank you so much for this passage, for this train of thought throughout Scripture that we are finite creatures, that you are the infinite creator, that we are moldable clay and you are the molding potter. God, we ask that we would have the self-awareness and the circumspection, the humility to reflect the meekness of our dependency. That in self-awareness of our own smallness, we would, instead of insisting on our own way, that we would be gracious, patient, and kind, entrusting ourselves to you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work this purpose of Christian maturity in our lives and that we indeed would reflect it back to the world. Jesus, you are great. We love you. And we can't wait to be with you. Amen.